Good morning, Mill City Church. Thank you so much, and welcome, as Katie said, to the ORH Oregon Recital Hall. Good to see all of you here. High balcony, way to go up there. Wave it back. We see you, we know you, we acknowledge you, we bless you. Thank you for being up there. Don't be like those old guys in the Muppets, though, okay? Just... And if you're online gathering with us, uh, welcome. Uh, thank you for being a part of our gathering this morning. My name is Kirk. I'm one of the pastors uh, here at Mill City. Several years ago, I had uh, a real huge privilege to be a part of a short-term uh, mission trip to Kenya. Uh, and one of the ministries that we partnered with while we were there was actually a church in the northeast portion of the country bordering Somalia town known as Garissa, about 100,000 people. The church was maybe 100 people, which was actually quite large for this particular church uh, because it was a church that uh, is a very small minority religious group, and they endured a lot of persecution for that reason. They handled that with a great deal of dignity and grace and class and love while keeping their attention on the mission of Jesus. And a huge part of that mission for them involved taking regular day trips across the border into Somalia, where there were another 100,000 people in a makeshift refugee camp, Somali refugees who had been escaping the violence and the corruption of their country for something safer for themselves and for their families. We're mindful of something similar happening today, uh, and we are prayerful uh, for the people of Ukraine and surrounding countries as they receive them. These people, not so lucky, they weren't able to cross the border into Kenya for uh, security reasons and political reasons, so they're essentially stuck right there in the Sahara Desert. No food, no water, no shelter, except anything that was brought over to them through humanitarian assistance. So the Red Cross was there, and the United Nations was there, and armed soldiers looked right out of the news. And they were there for not just a week or two or months, but an entire generation. They had kids and raised them here. And a huge part of what this little church would do on a regular basis is bring food across the border to this tribe over here, that tribe over there, this tribe over here. They would use the tribe elders or they would rely on the tribal elders to help them keep track of where they were going so they would cycle through all of the tribes. They would go back and they would do it again and again and again, just repeatedly. We had the privilege of joining them in one of these feeding missions, is what they called it, standing out in the Sahara and portioning out food for long lines of people, young and old, all of them women, actually, wearing traditional hijabs, and, uh, and it was truly one of the most profound, powerful, humbling, difficult to wrap my brain and heart around experiences that I have bar none ever had in my life. In fact, at one point, I had to remove myself from the process and go regather myself and to do some recovery. I stood next to the pastor of the church that was leading this effort, a Kenyan pastor, from whom I learned a lot that week. And he wanted me to point, he wanted to point some things out to me. He said, notice there's only women in the line. He said, the men are nowhere to be found. They're too ashamed because they're not being able to better provide for their families. He pointed over in this direction. He said, notice these small boys over here. He pointed about 50, 75 yards away, about a couple of dozen boys crouching in the sand or sitting on rocks. He said, they're studying you. He said, they're watching you give food to their families, and they're looking at the vans that you got out of, 
Vans with the symbol of the cross on them, the Christian symbol of the cross. And they're trying to do the math, and to them, it doesn't add up. Because all of their life, they're told, you are infidels. But right now, they're asking the question, if they're infidels, why are they the ones who are bringing us food? Why are they the ones who are helping our families survive in the Sahara Desert. He said it doesn't add up. And in this way, they think and they ask questions. Those questions lead to answers that point to the reality of God in Jesus. And he said by doing this over and over and over again, we build a bridge of love and compassion over which people may not be able to cross over into Kenya, but they can and do cross over into the kingdom. And I was so inspired to hear why they were doing this. But it got better. He said, our long-term vision is this. We're praying for the saved, called, trained, and equipped, and sent Somali refugee to bring the good news of Jesus back up into the heart of Somalia and plant churches in the capital city of Mogadishu. I was so moved. I thought, where can I sign up? This little church that has a great vision for an entire country to know Jesus and the tip of the arrow of their efforts is this simple act of compassion repeated over and over and over again. It reminds me of our passage of Scripture this morning in Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, where Jesus says these words, Blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. We're going through the Beatitudes on Sunday mornings in a series that we're calling Lucky. And it's not lucky as in I won the lottery or lucky as in, hey, I get the day off. More like lucky as in you are better off than you thought you were when these things are true in your life. So far, we've taken a look at the first four Beatitudes. Blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, blessed are those who mourn. Different order than what I just said, but they're all there. And, uh, and we're told that the first four Beatitudes are more inward in their orientation, whereas the second four are more outward in nature. I think that's an interesting observation. We're told that the first four have to do with emptying ourselves and being filled full of God, whereas the second four have to do with spilling that God life out of the world around us. That's beautiful. And that leads us to this fifth beatitude, blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. I appreciate how Eugene Peterson renders this in the message. He said, you're blessed when you care, because at the moment of being careful, you find that you are cared for. That's good. Theologian William Barclay says this, This beatitude is the most measurable of all of the beatitudes. It's worn in the sleeve because it lodges itself in the heart, but it expresses itself in the hand. So what might be a definition of mercy? Let me take a stab at it for us this morning. Uh, compassion, mercy is this, or could be this, compassion or forgiveness shown to someone whom it is within one's power to punish or harm, kindness towards someone who could be treated harshly, or the act of relieving the suffering of another. 
The merciful, therefore, are those who are so affected by the suffering of others as to be disposed to alleviate them. Mother Teresa was an Albanian nun who, after decades of faithful service, found herself relocating to Calcutta, India. She felt led by God to minister specifically to people who were dying helpless and alone on the streets. People that others would overlook or literally step over, she would pick up and take over to a makeshift hospice where beds were prepared, where they can be cleaned, lie in bed, and cared for, and nurtured, and taught the love of God, and given the chance to die with dignity. She did that for 30 years for people who couldn't do anything for her in return. Through that, she founded a whole new order of nuns called the Sisters of Charity who devote themselves to uh, caring for, reaching, gathering, teaching the poorest of the poor in the world. In fact, her life has been so inspiring that now years after her passing, there are some 5,000 workers in over 600 locations in 164 countries around the world doing what she did. Before she passed, Mother Teresa said these words. She said, at the end of our life, we will not be judged by how many diplomas that we have received, how much money we have made, or how many great things we have done. We will be judged by, I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. And of course, she's quoting directly from the words of Jesus, who in Matthew chapter 25 is teaching, among other things, about this great coming day of separation, a separation of people that he refers to because of the agricultural time in which he was teaching between sheep and goats. And he says, the difference between the two groups is how they respond to people in need, the hungry, the thirsty, the naked, the imprisoned, the the outcast, the foreigner, the stranger. And he says to one group, he will say, welcome into your everlasting joy and bliss, for as surely as you did it unto the least of these, my brothers, you have done it unto me. And yet to the other group, he will say, and I believe with a broken heart, depart from me, I never knew you. For as surely as you did not do it unto the least of these, you did not Do it unto me. According to Jesus, the difference between the two groups, between those who would know him on that day and those who don't know him on that day, is the singular quality of mercy. That of being so affected by the suffering of another as to be disposed to alleviate them. And it shouldn't surprise us, right? Because Jesus himself leads the way. Jesus was filled with mercy. Wherever he went, his response was mercy, where people tended to criticize or marginalize or or call into question the reason why somebody was experiencing need to begin with. Jesus always had the tendency to lean in and draw near and to show mercy. He showed mercy to the blind man. He showed mercy to the leper. He showed mercy to the Roman soldier. He showed mercy to the tax collector. He showed mercy to the woman who was caught in adultery. He even showed mercy to entire crowds of people because they were as sheep without a shepherd to where he was moved deeply 
with compassion. Jesus was merciful. And you see, this is what confused the religious leaders. Part of what just blew them away and rubbed them wrong about Jesus was this response of mercy. In their mind, theologically, the Holy One, the Messiah when He came, was not that. The Messiah was to be a conquering war hero, somebody who absolutely obliterated the enemy and would have no mercy, right? Cobra Kai Dojo, no mercy. A couple people after that. (laughs) Old karate kid, not the current one. But Jesus, when he came, he was unexpectedly merciful. And people quickly figured this out, which is why when they eventually learned when Jesus was passing by, they couldn't cry out to Jesus, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And he would. He would not refuse a single person who asked. The phrase, by the way, son of David, was a messianic term, referred to the Messiah who would come and sit on David's throne and rule forever. People quickly picked up on the fact as they were observing Jesus that they could ask for mercy and he would give it because he was a merciful king. And you see, this is important for us to recognize because here's the deal. As God incarnate, as the image of the invisible God and the exact representation of his being, Jesus gives us a perfect example of what God is like. And that God is a merciful God. And we see this especially pronounced when Jesus' responsive mercy would rub the wrong way, the religious leaders and their expectations of Jesus as the Messiah. On one particular occasion, he healed somebody on the Sabbath day. He did it a lot, but on one occasion, they called foul, time out, you can't do that. You're supposed to be the Messiah, but you're breaking God's law. He didn't break God's law. He simply violated the human traditions they had built up around God's law to where God's law was now completely obscured. Because what ruled God's law was ultimately the law of love. Jesus didn't defend himself. He didn't get defensive. When you look at the life of Jesus, he never once tries to exonerate himself or defend himself. I've got a lot to learn from Jesus. But he said this instead. He said, go find out what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. They would have known that he was quoting directly from an Old Testament passage of Scripture from the book of Hosea, chapter 6, verse 6, which was written and spoken during a time of Israel's history when the people were more concerned about the formalities of worship within the temple than they were the needs of people outside of the temple. They were dutiful in their religion to a T, but they were negligent of their neighbors. And God, through Hosea, essentially said, no, you've got it all wrong. Turn it around. Come back to the Lord, he said. First, make your worship glorious outside the temple, and then your worship will be glorious inside the temple, for I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You know, John in the New Testament, in 1 John, says something very similar when he asks the people of his day, how can you say that you love God whom you don't see when you don't love your neighbor whom you do see? Because God is a merciful God. And you see, this is super important for us to keep in mind in our day and age when it's easy, I think, sometimes for us to lose track of the eternal qualities of God, his divine nature, the character of his being. 
Sometimes I think it's easy for us as people to look at instances in the Bible where God expresses wrath or anger or vengeance and losing sight of the grander narrative of Scripture and the bigger story of God in history conclude that God is therefore an angry, wrathful, vengeful God, a capricious God. A God who's ready to explode, quick to be angry. One who is eager to strike people for getting out of line. And can I tell you, friends, nothing could be farther from the truth. In his book, Good and Beautiful God, Falling in Love with the God Jesus Knew, author and pastor James Bryan Smith says this. He says, wrath, vengeance, and anger are not eternal attributes of God. They are limited and temporary expressions of God's love when something that God loves is threatened. But they themselves are not eternal attributes of his nature, love, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and compassion are words that describe who God is. In his book, the name of, uh, listen to this, Lamentations, excuse me, skipped ahead there, Lamentations 3.23, how do we ground this in scripture? The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, his mercies never come to an end Great is your faithfulness. They are new every morning. Psalm 30, verse 5, For his anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts for a lifetime. You see the difference there. Psalm 145, verse 8, The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. Micah 7, 18, Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives transgression? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. Those are good words. In his book, The Name of God is Mercy, Pope Francis tells of a a young priest in Buenos Aires who is confiding in him and saying, I see a lot of people in the confessional and people from all walks of life. Some of them are humble and some of them are hmm, not so humble. He said, I forgive a lot. And sometimes I wonder if I have forgiven too much. And Francis asked him, what do you do when you have your doubts? He said, well, I go to the chapel and I stand in front of the tabernacle and I pray to Jesus, Lord, forgive me if I have forgiven too much, but you are the one who's given me the bad example. (laughs) Because God is a God of mercy, which means that his kingdom is run by a rule of mercy. James 2.12 says, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful, mercy triumphs over judgment. To put another way, those who show no mercy destroy the bridge over which they themselves must cross. Now, let me clarify here. What this beatitude is not teaching is that we earn mercy by being merciful people, right? We don't earn anything from God. We have His free love and favor, the goodness of God that's called grace. I love the definition of grace. This is God's unearned love and favor. There's nothing that you can do to make God love you more, nothing you can do or not do to make Him love you less. And yet, what this beatitude does teach is that those who show mercy give the evidence that they themselves have received the mercy they show. We can't give what we don't have. And if we're not giving it, it's because we don't have it. Because we all need mercy. The person next to you, on your right and your left, look at them and say, you need mercy. Your name is Mercy. (laughs) We've been talking about you all morning. (laughs) Don't get a big head. (laughs) 
We all need mercy. We are all in a place of needing God's grace and forgiveness. We never become ex-beggars. We all need mercy, and we're all in a place of pain at some place in our life, whether that's outward and visible and obvious to others or hidden from view and deep within. We are all fighting some battle. Every one of us right now in this place is in need of mercy. And those who cling to an angry God narrative lose sight of that reality and become angry people themselves. Because we become like whatever God we worship. St. Augustine said, the most important thing about you right now is what you think about God. Because that is what you will become. (laughs) And if the God we worship is an angry God, wrathful, harsh, judgmental, condemning, then guess what? That's what I will become. But if God is a merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he is the one that I worship, then guess what? That is what I'm going to become because we become like whatever God we worship. So what does it look like to be merciful? Right? I suppose we can make a list like uh, being kind to your neighbor or meeting needs of people around you or maybe giving people a second chance or building bridges of love to the unpopular or being patient with other people's particularities and quirks because they're all other people's particularities and quirks, right? They're not mine. We can develop a list, right? And I think it can be a mile long. We can check off that list. We can fill every box and say, check, 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 check. I've done this. I've done this. I've done this. And still not be merciful people. Because mercy begins here in the heart. Theologian Charles E. Moore says this, showing mercy is one thing, being merciful is another. Being merciful is not just doing good things. Mercy assumes a certain posture. The merciful knows what it means to need mercy, and that's why they can't help but respond to the guilt and the suffering of others. They, like Jesus, are moved with compassion towards all who have lost their way, and so they take upon themselves the distress, humiliation, need, and sin of others. Several weeks ago, uh, a couple of months ago, actually, when Aaron asked me to preach today and gave me this particular passage to preach from, I, 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 I looked it up and read it, and blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. I thought, I felt so thankful. But I also felt like, hmm, I could grow. And so I decided to give myself a little bit of a challenge. What would it look like if in the course of all of my interactions with people, I had this verse at the forefront of my mind? My wife, my family, my neighbors, my coworkers, customers, people that I paint for, um, people at church, people through a TV screen. What would it look like if, if in every human interaction, this passage of Scripture was at the forefront of my brain and was filtered through it, rather than the things that I tend to think about? Blessed are the merciful for they will receive mercy. How would that change my heart? How would that change my interactions, my interpretations of people's responses or reactions or actions? You get the idea. 
So I began to do that, and a few days after I gave myself that little challenge, I began a, a new interior painting project. I, I'm a painting contractor by trade, and I was doing a, an entire interior repaint uh, from somebody who bought a house here in Fort Collins from Texas. They're moving in a few weeks, and over the, between the time that I accepted the job and the time that I started the job, the whole job changed, and it became an entire interior remodel. So a whole new crew was there on day one, and they were doing demo work and remodel work, and I was following behind and painting rooms as they got completed. Day one, we make introductions, and we determine a kind of a course of action, the rhythm that we're going to take, and um, as we worked, I was reminded of how colorful the language of contractors can be. <laughs> and if you're a contractor, God bless you. Uh, and it was a very colorful day, very colorful day. And towards the end of the day, uh, the general contractor said, uh, well, how long have you been painting? I said, well, about three and a half years. He said, oh, what did you do that before that? Uh, framing or flooring or sheetrock? I said, no, actually, I've been a pastor my whole adult life, and, and I'm still a pastor in the church that I'm a part of. And his eyes got real big. <laughs> and he did this with his mouth. And all the other contractors, software they're doing, looked at each other with real big eyes. And uh, he said, I hope you weren't offended by anything that you've heard today. You might have said that because I was hired separately from the owner of the house and I didn't work for the general contractor and so I didn't report to him, just kind of cooperated with him and he was a little nervous and I said, don't worry about it, it's all cool. Not offended at all, a little bit entertained, <laughs> but not offended. And, uh, and I said, in fact, the best compliment you can give me is just be yourself and don't change a thing. So they were and they didn't. <laughs> and we you know, got into a rhythm, a flow of working and, and, and it worked and uh, they, uh, we got to know one another and can, they continued to be colorful and I continued to not be colorful and you know, they were listening to the screamo music and I'm listening to Hillsong worship and not at the same time uh, but who shows up first has the rules for the music not that screamo's bad, you know, it's just not my thing you know, rap and you know, Maverick City just blend it together and it sounds well, anyway and every now and then we would strike a happy medium with some Boston or U2 or some classic rock, maybe a little Phil Collins in there to make things smooth. And uh, about day four, not that smooth, <laughs> we, uh, such a rapport was developed where uh, one of the contractors asked me at the end of the day, he said, you're a preacher, right? I said, yeah, kind of, I'm a pastor of my church. And he said, um, can I get your number? I would really like to talk to you. I mean, he said, I'm seeing a counselor. I would love to talk to you. So I said, yeah, sure. I texted him my number. He said, I just would love to go to lunch or coffee and just talk with you. And, so, uh, and then he started talking to me <laughs> right there. And those are the moments you just have to push aside the hustle and just enter into what God is doing in the space. And hopefully I did that okay. And I said, he said this. He said, uh, I about lost my life with drugs and alcohol overdose last spring, and I shouldn't even be here. I have been in and out of drug treatment. I have lost my wife. I have lost my kids, and I am so ashamed. And he said, at nighttime, when I go to bed, I am so afraid. I am so afraid of what I'm going to do to myself and probably would have already done to myself were it not for my dog, but I need to be here. My kids need me for them. I said, well, yeah, let's definitely get some coffee or lunch, whatever, the sooner the better. I said, but you have just given me a lot. You've been very generous. I hate to leave you hanging with that. Can I just pray for you? 
And he said, um, I don't really believe in God. I said, that's okay. <laughs> you don't have to believe in God. <laughs> said, I, and I don't want to impose what I believe about God on you, but I would really value the chance to pray for you some things that I think God is thinking right now about you if there was a God. <laughs> he said, okay. <laughs> you got to bypass the brain and get to the heart. <laughs> And uh, so I, I bowed my head and, and my, my head, <laughs> closed my eyes, and he did too, I know, because I, I peeked. <laughs> <laughs> What's going on around me? <laughs> and everyone else did too. Wow. The, the, the work stopped, the music stopped, the dust settled. It was the quietest that house had been in four days. And I had just a chance to just pray the heart of the Father over this young man who I think just needed a dad. Just pray that he's made in the image of God and has value and worth is infinite regardless of anything in this world. And nothing at all could change that. And yeah, he needs to be here because his kids need him, but even more because he's, just, he's worth it. He deserves it. That God made him and has put his impress upon him and has put him in this world to emulate his glory in this world and how the Heavenly Father loves him and delights in him and, and longs for him to, to know the goodness and the grace of the Father and, and to bring him to a place of healing and wholeness and restoration that is ultimately found in his son Jesus. And I don't know everything that I'm praying. I'm, and I'm assuming it was all right. And, and, I, and I said amen and I opened my eyes and he opened his and his tears are flooding down his face. And um, he lets out this big sigh of relief. Like something deep in his soul had just taken a thirsty drink. You know that moment where somebody, you know somebody has tasted to see that the Lord is good. And you can only have that by experience. You can't argue someone into that. You just bring them. And uh, he reaches out to shake my hand and say thank you. And I reach out to shake his and he pulls me in for a big contractor bear hug. And, uh, and then he backs up a little bit and, you know, and he looks around and goes, all right, everybody, back to work, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and I felt in those moments just the pleasure of God surging into that space. It was just, it was thin. It was undeniable. And I, and I don't say that to toot my own horn or anything like that because I, I don't know how, how I would have responded. And I gave myself that challenge because I needed the help. And it, but somehow God entered into that space. And it was a reminder to me of how we don't know the battles that people are fighting deep within. We don't know what people are going through. We can observe the outward actions and reactions and the manifestations of those battles deep within in ways that we don't always approve of as church people or as religious people and things that, that we might get upset by in terms of their pursuit of wrong goals and wrong gods and feel maybe some judgment or some contempt toward people when we haven't really taken the time to stop and enter into their story in the way that Jesus enters into ours. The bottom line is that the kingdom of God that is breaking into history is a kingdom of mercy. And when that kingdom is breaking into our life, then we can't help but to be all caught up in mercy. So what do we do? How, what do we do with this talk? How do we activate maybe some mercy in our hearts and our lives? One thing that we're doing through this series is memorizing the Beatitudes. 
And I might encourage us this week to memorize this one. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. And reminding ourselves that mercy begins in the heart and expresses itself in the hand. What might it look like to to do something to alleviate the suffering of another, even just a little bit, even just a glass of cold water, Jesus said to one of these little ones of mine. That might be a neighbor across the street who is in a place of hurt and pain. That might be to a neighbor on the other side of the world who is in a place of hurt and pain. No shortage of those. People escaping Ukraine for safety themselves, their lives, their families, the countries receiving them, not to forget about other countries in the world where there's plenty of hurt. And what might that look like to be the people of God in those spaces? Now, maybe you're here this morning as one who's like, I need mercy. I hear what you're saying, but you know, it's hard to give mercy when you're in a place of pain, having been so deeply violated yourself, maybe laboring under the pain of a fractured relationship or struggling under the fear of what's going to happen financially to your tomorrow. Those are hard places to be. And Jesus is even there. And when you're in the throes of pain and your heart wants to cry out for mercy, guess what? Mercy comes near. It's not just you're shown mercy. Mercy is a person. Mercy is Jesus. Jesus, mercy himself can't help but to draw near just like he did in days of old he does right here right now mercy comes near in fact that is a promise let us therefore come boldly before the throne of grace so that we can find grace and mercy to help us in our hour of need if that's you this morning I pray that your soul would receive a glass of cold water today from the mercy of God who sees he sees your need He sees your tears, and he calls you his own. Maybe you need to receive the mercy of God for the first time, or the first time in a long time, by experiencing the forgiveness and grace that he makes freely available through the perfect life of his son Jesus, his sacrificial death, and his bodily resurrection. I am convinced that one of the greatest promises in the whole Bible and I could be corrected, just an opinion, (laughs) is in 1 John, where the scripture says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth of God is not in us. But if we confess our sin, if we just own up (laughs) to what God already knows, then God is faithful and just and will forgive us, quick to forgive us and purify us from all unrighteousness. That is a life-giving promise, if I have ever heard one. (laughs) And it's a promise that's available right here and right now, and if that's a cry of your heart, and the desire of your heart. I simply want to invite you into the sound of my voice quietly in your own heart to say something like, Lord Jesus, I admit that I am sinful, that I need mercy, and I ask you to come into my life. Be my forgiver, my leader. I give you my life. And he hears you. He runs to you to unfold you into himself and to call you his own and to never, ever let you go. So, Father in heaven, thank you for being a merciful God. We thank you that you so loved this world that you did not send the anger of God incarnate or the judgment of God incarnate or the contempt of God incarnate. 
You sent the love of God incarnate, the mercy of God incarnate, who said, I did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world, because the world stands condemned already. And so, Lord, we receive gratefully your mercy and grace for us this morning. May it continue to transform us into a merciful people that by the power of your Holy Spirit, we might embody the eternal qualities and the character of God, his goodness and grace and his mercy to the world around us. In Jesus' name we pray.